Civil rights hero John Lewis passes away. The media confidently explained that the United States has failed at fighting coronavirus. It's not quite that simple. And the media continue to ignore Chinese genocide. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Surf the web with peace of mind. Sign up right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. We're going to get to all the news in just one second and much news there is. But first, I told you back in January, you might want to think about diversifying into precious metals. Was I right? Hmm? Was I? I was because that was back when gold was below 1500 bucks. Today, gold is up over 1800 Why? Well, gold and silver thrive in uncertain times. And this has been a little bit uncertain, right? Between coronavirus and the upcoming election and all the chaos in our streets, seems like a lot more uncertainty than usual. This would be a great time still to diversify into precious metals. Listen, I have some gold in my portfolio. I think you should too. I trust Birch Gold. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Countless five-star reviews. You can talk to them. Have them help you safeguard your investments. They are knowledgeable and they want to help you preserve your savings. You should ask all your questions. You should feel fully informed before you invest. And then when you're ready to diversify into precious metals, go ahead and talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. If you haven't reached out to Birch Gold to diversify part of your IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA or just purchase physical gold or silver from them, talk with them today. Text Ben to 474747. Get a free information kit on protecting your savings with gold. Again, text Ben to 474747. When you open an IRA in precious metals before July 31st, you get a signed copy of my last book, The Right Side of History, for free. Again, text Ben to 474747 right now. Okay, so the big news over the weekend is that tragically, Congressman John Lewis passed away at the age of 80. Now, you don't have to agree with all of John Lewis's priorities as a legislator to recognize that he was indeed an American hero, that his role during the civil rights movement, his last living man who spoke at the Martin Luther King March on Washington, his role in the civil rights movement as an activist fighting for racial equality and for the rights of black Americans is unquestioned and good, obviously. The late congressman's family announced his death with inconsolable grief and enduring sadness late Friday evening, according to a statement from NBC News. According to the statement, he was honored and respected as the conscience of the U.S. Congress and an icon of American history. But we knew him as a loving father and brother who's a stalwart champion in the ongoing struggle to demand respect for the dignity and worth of every human being. He dedicated his entire life to nonviolent activism and was an outspoken advocate in the struggle for equal justice in America. The son of sharecroppers, Lewis was drawn to the civil rights movement as a teenager, participated in lunch counter sit-ins in the early 1960s. By the way, those lunch counter sit-ins were incredibly successful because essentially they helped shame corporations into opening up their lunch counters through actually non-governmental means. He later became the youngest member of the Big Six, the colloquial name for the group of civil rights leaders, including MLK, who organized the March on Washington. He received all sorts of bipartisan tribute. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell praised Lewis's civil rights work, talked about the humbling experience of joining hands with John as members and, and members of Congress and singing We Shall Overcome at a 2008 ceremony honoring his friend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump put out a statement via Trump's Twitter account. Obviously, he and Lewis were not on speaking terms. Lewis I'm certainly not a Trump fan. I believe he boycotted the inauguration, but Trump put out a statement saying, saddened to hear the news of civil rights hero John Lewis passing Melania, and I send our prayers to him and his family. Vice President Pence considered Lewis a colleague and a friend, said he was unfailingly kind, and that his, quote, selflessness and conviction rendered our nation into a more perfect union. His example will inspire generations of Americans. And President Obama said that he, quote, loved this country so much he risked his life and his blood so it might live up to its promise. And through the decades, he not only gave all of himself to the cause of freedom of justice, but inspired generations that followed to try to live up to his example. He's part of the shared history that we all have as Americans, and the country is lesser for the loss of John Lewis. That does bring us to a Fox News poll. There's a Fox News poll out today, and this is not about President Trump. This is about our shared values. I have a book coming out tomorrow called How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Right now, it's ranked in the top three over at Amazon. I think the reason for that is because there are a lot of questions about whether we can hold together as a country. In order for us to hold together as a country, we have to share some common values. Those values are the values of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, regardless of race. We all have equal rights before the law, that we have rights that pre-exist government, that government was created in order to protect all of those rights. And what you see from the civil rights movement heroes is that these are folks who are invoking the promises of the Declaration of Independence, who are invoking the promissory note, is the language of Martin Luther King Jr., Invoking the promissory note is the language of Frederick Douglass, suggesting that those values were not only useful, but eternal and universal, and that the failure of the United States was to live up to its own values. And the story of American history is the progress toward the fulfillment of the values expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Indeed, what makes the founders heroes rather than villains is the fact that they helped the world progress away from values that stood against those universal enlightenment values 
those values, that all men are created equal, and that we have liberty that pre-exists government, right? those values are good. The failure of our education system, the failure of our media, the failure of our elites to re-inculcate this message means that the country is on the verge of falling apart. And that's what you are seeing in the streets today. What you are seeing is a, a whole group of young Americans, minority Americans, who have been taught that the American dream is actually a lie. The 1619 Project, which is a pseudo-history dedicated to the proposition that America is inherently evil. Like that pseudo-history has become the mainstream history in so many of our institutions. And you can see the gaps in terms of age and race on these questions. I mean, listen, you can understand why if you're a black American, you looked at American history, which is replete with Jim Crow and, and slavery, you would look at America's founders skeptically. But that's missing the story. The story is that the founding fathers moved America away from a system of slavery and toward a system of freedom. That it was indeed the civil rights leaders who saw in the promises of the Declaration the lever by which they could move the country forward away from the brutality of bigotry and toward tolerance. The story of America is the story of 1776. It is not the story of 1619. But that's not the story that's been promulgated to America's young people. And it's not the story that's been promulgated to black Americans and Hispanic Americans, particularly by these poll numbers. If you, and, that's a, and that's a problem. That's not a problem with black Americans or Hispanic Americans or young people. It's a problem with our system that has failed to teach people the truth about American history and about American values. Because conservatives abandoned the institutional fight and instead went toward the political. Because too many Americans who have a traditionally unionist view, as I call it in my book, have a traditionally unionist view, meaning we want to hold together over our history and our philosophy and our culture. They, they abandoned the halls of education. They abandoned the halls of media, the halls of Hollywood. And instead, they focused in on winning political victories as sort of a, a last gasp attempt to stop the march of the cultural left. And that's been a failure. You can look at these numbers. So here is the question, according to a Fox News poll that is out today. In general, do you believe the founders of our country are better described as villains or heroes? Total, 15% of Americans believe that the founders were villains. 63% believe that the founders were heroes. 15% said it depends. 7% said they don't know. That means fully, almost four in 10 Americans don't know or disagree that the founders were heroes. The founders were heroes. Were they flawed? Absolutely. Did they commit acts of great evil that were commonplace at the time, by the way? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that the evil is minimized? No. What does it mean? It means that when we look at the contributions of the founders, we are not looking at them as slaveholders. We're looking at the values they espoused that led to the rise of the greatest, most free, most tolerant, most prosperous nation in the history of the world. The story of the founding fathers is not truly the story of slavery or evil. The story of the founding fathers is the Declaration of Independence. Slavery and evil are part of that because that's a universal human sin. But to look at America and see just the bad, which is the purpose of so many of the disintegrationists in our society, is to misread the history. Yes, we should obviously look at the sins, the evils of American history, as a corrective to a completely whitewashed version of American history. But the evil does not overcome the good. The story of Humanity, the world over, is human sin and human flaw and human evil. The story of the American Revolution is the story of putting in place a system that would gradually, over time, vitiate those sins. That's the story that needs to be told. So the, that poll number that shows 63% of Americans think the founders were heroes as opposed to 37% who either don't know or don't think that they were heroes, that's a pretty devastating poll. It means that a very close majority actually believe in the foundations of the country. And when you look at the demographic breakdown, it's even worse. 39% of black Americans believe that the founders were villains. Only 31% believe that the founders were heroes. 16% said it depends. 14% said they don't know. If a plurality of black Americans believe that the founders were villains, that's going to be a problem for the future of the country because if the founders were villains, then the values that they espoused are villainous values. And this is the perspective of the Nicole Hannah Joneses of the world. This is the perspective of the Robin D'Angelo's of the world. That America's system is in, in and of itself cruel and racist and vicious. 26% of, of Hispanic Americans believe the founders were villains. 44% believe they were heroes. 21% say that it depends. 8% say they don't know. So blacks and Hispanics, uh, a, a plurality, at least, well, actually a, a pure majority, refuse to say that the founders were heroes. By the way, this holds true for young Americans as well. Right? This is not just a racial thing. This is, this is a failure of our educational system. If you look at Americans who are under the age of 45, 50% say heroes, 23% say villains. 
But if you look at under the age of 30, it gets worse. Under the age of 30, only 31, 31% of Americans under the age of 30 believe that the founders were villains. Only 39% say the founders were heroes, which means over six in 10 young Americans under the age of 30, over six in 10 believe that the founders were not heroes, which is just devastating for the future of the country. Again, if you're going to have a country, any country, not just America, any country that holds together has to share a common set of values. They have to share a common history. They have to share a common culture. Now, the values, the history, and the culture of the United States are embedded respectively in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, in our cultural institutions, institutions like church, our education system, our media, right? values of entrepreneurialism, values of virtue, and in a common history. And when we look at our history, again, we have to acknowledge all the sins, we have to acknowledge all the evils, but we have to recognize that American history is a glorious thing. It is a glorious story of overcoming those sins of human nature. Our inability to teach young people this, our inability to teach that the promise has been extended to minorities and that the story of America is the flaws of human beings failing to understand the reality and the truth of the founding principle and then the gradual realization of that principle, that failure has deep and abiding consequences. And you can see those consequences in the streets today as violence continues, as the country overwhelmingly feels like it is falling apart. That, 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 that feels right. It feels like it's falling, but a lot of people are going to blame Trump for the falling apart of the country. That is not right. These are long-term trends. They've been, I'd say, catalyzed by President Trump's election because there was a feeling among members of the left that they had captured the Democratic Party and that they could gradually move the Democratic Party toward their goal, which was the dissolution of the system over time, that they would never lose again. And then when President Trump won, it was like a shock to the system. They couldn't take it. And so that has catalyzed so much of the opposition and so much of the rage that we are seeing right now. So what does that mean? It means that if Trump loses, then presumably a lot of the rage and opposition will be integrated back into the Democratic Party as opposed to being sort of outside the system more generally. But it doesn't mean that the overall threat to the American system is gone. It just means that it goes back underground into the halls of the Democratic Party where the battle really rages. You saw this during the Obama administration when the sort of roots of the AOC squad versus the, the Nancy Pelosi, quote unquote, traditionalists started to build, right? That broke out into the open after Trump's election. They could see that it was building a lot earlier than that. I mean, the Ferguson riots were happening during Barack Obama's presidency. So obviously there was this, this outraged belief by a huge number of Americans that America was endemically wrong and bad and evil. They may have used the Democratic Party as a vehicle for expressing those values in terms of politics, but they've been generally unsatisfied with that over time, which is why, again, there was so much I think, resistance to Hillary Clinton as a nominee. That's why Bernie Sanders was so successful, despite the fact that he's an octogenarian communist, or maybe because of the fact that he's an octogenarian communist. Bottom line is this. If we don't re-inculcate our values, America's going to fail. If we do not re-inculcate the values of America's founding, America is going to fail. And it's, there's no excuse for that. We are the freest, most prosperous, most tolerant country in the history of the world. The fact that that may not have been true historically, it is certainly true now. The idea that America ought to be living on razor's edge at this point in time is patently absurd, except for the fact that we have undermined all of the values that we share. Now, I don't mean for that to be a book pitch, but essentially is you should go check out my book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It comes out tomorrow. It is available over at amazon.com as well as everywhere else that you buy books. You can go check it out right now. In just a second, we're going to get to your COVID-19 updates. First, we're home more than usual these days, but it's still hard to keep a close eye on things. More deliveries means more boxes left unattended, more opportunities for packages to go missing. Thankfully, there's Ring.com. I have two separate friends who have had their mailboxes robbed in recent weeks. Because of Ring.com, they were, they were able to give the footage directly to the police who were able to track down the people who were doing the, the stealing. Ring is on a mission to make neighborhoods safer. Their home security products are designed to give you peace of mind around the clock. From video doorbells and security cameras to smart security lighting and alarm systems, Ring has everything you need to make sure your family and belongings are safe and secure anytime, anywhere. And with the all-new Ring Video Doorbell 3, you can keep an even closer eye on things than ever before. Ring gives you video protection at every corner. Video doorbells let you answer the door and check in on your home anytime. Keep an eye on your doorstep. Speak to delivery people when you can't come to the door. With outdoor security cameras, you can check in on every part of your house. Never miss a moment. Smart lighting brightens up blind spots. Make sure you always come home to a brightly lit house. Get a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit when you go to ring.com slash Ben. That welcome kit includes the Ring Video Doorbell 3 and the Chime Pro. It's all you need to start building custom security for your home today. Just go to ring.com slash Ben. That is ring.com slash Ben and get a special offer on that Ring Welcome Kit. We rely on it in my home. You should too. Go ring.com slash Ben. That is ring.com slash Ben. Okay, so 
on COVID-19. COVID-19 continues to spread almost unchecked throughout the country at this point. It is not restricted to red states. It is happening pretty much everywhere. You can look at the uptick in cases across the country. There's an uptick in places like Ohio. There's an uptick in places like Montana. There's an uptick in places like Maryland, which is a, a blue state with a red governor. There's an uptick in Colorado now. There's an uptick in Puerto Rico. There's an uptick in Rhode Island, right? You're, you're seeing a rise in cases that is happening essentially across the country. You're also seeing a sort of flattening out in, in the death rate, at least at this point. What we have seen on a day-on-day level is that we're hovering around 1,000 deaths a day, somewhere from 800 to 1,000 deaths a day over the last few days, none of which is good, right? I mean, these are all bad numbers, obviously. But what it does suggest is maybe we're starting to see a flattening out. We're st- certainly starting to see a flattening out in terms of the hospitalization rate in places like Arizona and Texas. Unclear whether that is happening in Florida, although there are early indicators that may be happening in Florida. The, the real issue here, as I discussed last week, is there may not be any great answers here. Now, I know the media want to promulgate this notion that there are basically two answers to this and two answers only. One is mandatory masking, masking and the second is lockdowns. The media loves lockdowns. I mean, they really love lockdowns. And the idea behind this is that if you want to prevent the spread of the disease, you have to keep people cooped up in their homes. Now, the problem is that that's not an actual solution. And we all know this. This is not something that can last interminably. The Europeans know this. The Israelis know this. Everyone all over the world is trying to figure out how they can reopen and when they can reopen and how much spread they can allow when they do reopen. The lockdowns were never meant to crush the curve. Now, this is a new phrase. Remember, it was flatten the curve before, right? You remember flatten the curve. Right, flatten the curve was all sorts of fun. Right? It was 15 days to stop the spread, and you had the giant spike, and then you had the lesser spike. And I'm just going to draw the quick chart for you right here. You can see this line here represented medical capacity, and then you saw the big, big wave over here. And this is the one you wanted to avoid, right? because everything that was in this shaded area was going to be excess death. The medical system was not going to be able to integrate these folks, and these people were going to die. The, what we were looking for instead was a broader, longer curve. Right, The broader, longer curve That meant there were still going to be a lot of cases, but it also meant that fewer people were going to die. Now, what's been weird about this is now we are talking about crushing the curve. So the idea about crushing the curve is that in order to prevent all transmission of the disease forever, we should just stay home forever. And now that has never been a solution. That's never been a solution. The, The full lockdown policy has not been a solution. So the real question is, are we threatening the system? And if we are threatening the system, then what you're going to have to have are sort of intermittent letting people out and putting people back in. And this is what we were, again, this is nothing new. This is what the quote unquote experts were saying at the very beginning. They were saying there are going to be alternating policies of sort of quasi lockdown and half lockdown and freedom. And we're going to have to vary it based on county. This is what the experts were saying. And then when that happens, the entire media suggests, oh my God, we're all going to die. Oh my God, we're doing it wrong. And you know who's really doing it wrong? Those red states. And, and then you look at the numbers and what you see is that blue states are getting hit too. Colorado's getting hit too. California's getting smoked right now. Now, I live in LA County. LA County's looking at another lockdown right now. Not just another lockdown. They're looking at a, a full stay-at-home order. Now, Eric Garcetti says the coronavirus is spreading in the city to the point where a new stay-at-home order might have to be issued. He said we're on the brink of that. He said this on CNN. He declined to be more specific. He said we have to be surgical rather than a cleaver that would just shut everything down. He said he agreed earlier restrictions had been relaxed too quickly. He said mayors often have no control over what reopens up and what doesn't. That's either at a state or a county level. But he added, it's not just about what's open and closed. It's also about what we do individually. Okay, let's be real about this. LA never opened. Okay, I've been here. LA did not open. There was a mild, mild reopening, and then it sort of clamped shut again. So the notion that lockdowns are the answer to this thing in the long term or even the midterm is just not right. Meanwhile, the sort of red-blue gap that supposedly existed, it doesn't really exist. You're seeing an uptick in cases in places like Colorado. You're not seeing it to the extent that you've seen it in places like Florida or Texas, but that's because it's not as hot in Colorado right now. But you are seeing an uptick in Colorado. That's because Colorado opened at the same time as Georgia. One of the reasons that you've seen an uptick across the South is because the hotter it gets, by the way, I expect that because there's been a heat wave in places like Washington, D.C., you'll see an uptick there too. Because of the heat, people are being driven inside to air-conditioned closed areas, and this means that you're seeing a spike in cases. None of this should be surprising. It's not supremely surprising. But again, we moved from flatten the curve to avoid spiking over the healthcare capacity to crush the curve, which supposedly means that you're just supposed to stay home forever. Well, that's not going to work. Like this notion that this was ever going to be a consistent policy, that as we reopen gradually, there would be no setbacks along the way. I don't know where this came from. I seriously don't know where it came from. 
So the NIH director yesterday, he said, well, the big problem here is Dr. Francis Collins is that states jumped over the CDC recommendations. They, they, they moved too fast here. Or alternatively, whenever you let people out of home confinement, there's going to be a spread in cases. I literally said this every day for months, that the only purpose here was to allow us some time, to buy us some time, right, to allow the medical system to get better at this. And good news, the medical system did get better at this. The rate of ICUs to hospitalizations is down. The rate of deaths to ICUs is down. Younger people are getting this, which you don't want anybody getting this, but younger people getting it is a lot better than older people getting it. And even when people are getting it, we now have better treatments. We know things we didn't know at the very beginning. Simple things like flipping people onto their stomach can sometimes help prevent putting them on a ventilator. But here was the NIH director saying, the big problem is that states jumped over CDC recommendations. Listen, when you're a government actor, I understand the incentive structure. The incentive structure is to always say people weren't cautious enough, and that's why all this happened. Here's the reality. What happened here was, by all indicators, fairly inevitable. It has happened in every single state, every single one, without regard to politics. Okay, the only states that have not seen a major uptick are states where there are no people. Okay, Alaska has not seen an uptick because there were no people. Maine has not seen a significant uptick because there are no people. Wyoming has not seen a significant uptick because there are no people. Where there are lots of people, there is lots of spread. And when you reopen, there's going to be a little more spread. And that was never the question. Again, the question was not, are people going to get it? The question was, is it going to swamp the healthcare system? So far, we've seen no indicators that the healthcare system has been completely swamped. In fact, as we've said, hospitalization rates are going down. ICU rates are going down. Death rates have been going down since their peak. When we talk about how Texas and Florida, they're the new New York. No, they're not even close to the new New York. New York was losing like a thousand people a day. Texas and Florida, as bad as they have been, are losing like 130, 140 people a day. That's terrible. That is not New York rates. Anyway, here's the NIH director saying the big problem here is that people opened up too early, even though, by the way, many of these states opened up in early May and we didn't see a spike in terms of case rate until like mid-June, like approximately two weeks after those mass protests in the streets. You remember those? Here's the CIA, here is the, the NIH director. We basically did a good job in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut with that terrible crisis that happened and took many lives. And if you look to see what's happening now in those areas, they came down very close to zero. But meanwhile, the rest of the country, perhaps imagining this was just a New York problem, kind of went about their business, didn't really pay that much attention to CDC's recommendations about the phases necessary to open up safely and jumped over some of those hoops. And people started congregating and not wearing masks and feeling like it's over and maybe summer it'll all go away. And now here we are. Okay, I frankly cannot believe that America's public officials are talking up New York. It is unbelievable to me. It's like talking up Italy. How in the world are you talking up the area of the country that got smoked? New Jersey and New York and Connecticut got brutalized. Approximately 37% of all deaths in the United States from COVID-19 happened in those three, those three states alone. They represent like 6% of the American population. That is nuts. To talk up those states, oh, look at what they did. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, they really handled their bleep. Did they though? By the way, this is the exact same thing that Anthony Fauci said. And then you asked me to trust the experts. Listen, I'm happy to listen to the experts. When they say blatant bullshit, <laughs> when they say blatant bullcrap, I'm gonna have a, a tough time believing them. Okay, again, the death rates per million the states with the worst death rates per million are in order. New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, followed by Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and District of Columbia. All of those areas did exactly what the CDC and the NIH said they should, and they got smoked. So the idea that, that they've, they've now conquered this thing. No, what happened in New York and New Jersey, the reason they're not seeing an uptick right now is because everyone's dead. Okay, anyway, here's Anthony Fauci. Again, I, I don't, like, what's going through his head that, he is, that he's praising New York's response to this? I just don't get it. We have a problem, we need to admit it and own it, but we've got to do the things that are very clear that we need to do to turn this around. Remembering, we can do it. We know that when you do it properly, you bring down those cases. We've done it, we've done it in New York. New York got hit worse than any place in the world and they did it correctly. They did it correctly? How did they do it correctly? Everyone died, like what? 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 Okay, we're going to get to more of this in a second. You wonder why we can't have unity, why we can't have nice things? We can't have nice things because our experts are telling us stupid stuff like that. I'm sorry, that's dumb. That's just dumb. Okay, and I've been, an, I've been a Fauci defender. I've been saying he's doing, the, he's doing the best he can. He's operating off the best info. But when you just spill blatant crap into the public like New York did it right, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, that's just obviously not true. By every available metric, that's not true. Okay, we're going to get to more of this in just one second. First, as we slowly adjust to the new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business. 
One of those things means, why are you wasting time and energy going to the post office? Instead, head on over to Stamps.com. Stamps.com makes things easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of Stamps.com in recent months. They've been able to keep their businesses running, avoid the crowds at the post office, all from their own computers. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand, avoid going to the post office, and you'll save money with discounts at rates you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62%. No residential surcharges. It's a great service. Here at Daily Wire, there's a reason we've been using daily, using stamps.com since 2017. No more wasting our time. We've saved ourselves tons of time and tons of money, which is what we like to do here at our fully functioning Death Star. Stamps.com, you get great discounts. Five cents off every stamp, 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time and it saves you money. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. Four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in Shapiro. That is stamps.com. Enter Shapiro at the top of the homepage. Click on that microphone. Stamps.com. You get a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitment. Stamps.com. Click on that mic at the top of the homepage. Type in Shapiro. Okay, so again, the media have come up with this narrative. This narrative is there are two basic strategies that can be used with regard to coronavirus. One is you lock everything down or we're going to yell at you. And two is masking. Okay, again, I am I am put off by the fact that people who are promoting lockdowns right now are simultaneously saying, and again, that is Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute for Infectious and Allergic and Infectious Diseases, and the NIH director, both touting New York as an example of what to do. I don't know how, the, how that's possible. I really don't know how that's possible. Anthony uh, Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, he did not, the governor of New York, he did not shut down the subways until the beginning of May. Okay, he didn't cleanse, he didn't clean them until the beginning of May. Like even overnight, he didn't clean them. He was shipping elders with COVID back into nursing homes for months. Like how? How is that the example of what you are doing right? Okay, okay, so the other angle that is being used here is that masking is the be all end all. Now, listen, I wear a mask. In fact, I insist that everybody in my immediate vicinity at the office wear a mask. I take this stuff very seriously. The, the evidence on mask wearing is mixed. Okay, let's be frank about this. Dr. Scott Atlas at Hoover Institute from Stanford University, he has said the evidence is mixed. The CDC says the evidence is mixed. The WHO says the evidence is mixed. Now, if there is the, the chance that is going to lower the, the rates of transmission, then out of an abundance of caution, I recommend masking. Okay, so I've never been an opponent of masking. I've never thought it was a grave infringement on my liberty to ask me to mask up when I go into a highly crowded area. I've always thought, okay, seems like a cautious and well-taken step. But the notion that masking is the be-all, end-all, and this has simply become the be-all, end-all because Trump refused to mask. I mean, it really is that. Right? If Trump had not said anything, or if Trump had come out early and he had said, you know, it's a good idea masking, this would not be an issue. But the media were looking for a point of political polarization. Now, here's the problem. The data do not back the idea that tons of Americans are wildly, wildly anti-masking. There are some Americans who are wildly anti-masking, but by and large in the areas where there are the most cases, people are overwhelmingly masking. I pointed this out on Twitter over the weekend. People went nuts. I pointed out that if you look at the, the areas of the country where there are the highest levels of infection, those are also the areas where there are the highest levels of masking. Now, people on the left immediately refused to read my follow-up tweets in the thread, which pointed out that I was not saying that masks don't stop the spread of disease. I was pointing out merely that where people are seeing infections, they are masking. So the idea that people are being overwhelmingly willy-nilly stupid and just going out where there are tons of infections, like in Miami, and not wearing masks is really dumb. I was in Florida for a couple of weeks. People were masked up. Right? As things were happening in Miami, everybody was wearing a mask. Okay? In LA, everyone wears a mask. The, the basic idea the media have put out there, though, is that this is just a failure of masking. Now, there, there are a couple of flaws in this sort of thinking. And so here is a, a poll. It was put out by the New York Times, and it shows by percentage how often people from different places say they wear a mask when they leave the house. And here's what it shows. In the Philippines, 92% of people say that they always wear a mask when they leave the house, always. In Mexico, which is just getting smoked right now, Mexico's numbers are awful. One of the reasons that we're seeing a spike in border counties, and there is, there's a massive spike in border counties. Even the New York Times has been forced to now pay attention to this. Vulnerable border counties are now being overwhelmed with new cases. The reason for this is because some people are crossing the border illegally and because if somebody crosses the border from highly hit Mexico into a border town, it spreads more easily. In the Rio Grande Valley, more than a third of families, according to the New York Times, live in poverty. Up to half the residents have no health insurance, including at least 100,000 undocumented people who often rely on under-resourced community clinics or emergency rooms for care. 
places like the southernmost wedge of Texas are seeing a punishing surge in infections. Okay, so Mexico is actually a serious problem. You've seen this in Arizona as well, that Texas and Arizona are getting hard hit, particularly in the border counties. Okay, but Mexico, go back to the chart showing the, the masking rate. Mexico, 85% of people in Mexico say they always wear a mask when they leave the house. In Spain, which got devastated, 84% of people say they wear a mask when they leave the house. So there is this basic idea out there that masking equals really low rates of death. And then people look at Hong Kong, which, by the way, is experiencing another surge. Actually, the, the Hong Kong government just announced that they are going to mandate masks. It's not just voluntary anymore. They're going to mandate masks and they're going to go back into lockdown because Hong Kong has seen a surge in cases. Now, the surge in cases in Hong Kong is like 100 cases as opposed to, you know, 70,000 in the United States. But for Hong Kong, which never experienced a major hit, that's a pretty, like they said, basically it's spreading out of control. We can't contact trace it anymore is what they were saying over the weekend over in Hong Kong. But you can see the differential. Okay, so Spain, their death per million rate, the death per million rate in Spain per million population is 608. Okay, which is significantly higher than that of the United States. I believe we're in the mid 400s, death per million rate. Okay, 84% of the population of Spain says they mask. 83% of the population of Hong Kong says they mask. The Hong Kong death rate is two per one million. Two, okay? So there's a pretty wild differential there. So if you're looking at independent variables, masking doesn't seem to be the most obvious independent variable. Italy, right, where everybody got wiped out. 83% of the population says they mask. Germany, where they really didn't get very hard hit, 63% of the population says that they mask. The United States, by the way, 59% of Americans say they mask every time they go out of the house. Now, this is all self-reported, so who knows if it's true. Self-reporting social science data is usually the worst, but 59% of Americans say they always mask, as opposed to 14% who say they never mask. And now let's look at some of the other countries on this list. 4% of people in Norway say they always mask. 0%, okay, effectively 0% in Denmark, Finland, and Sweden say they mask when they go out of the house. 9% in the Netherlands, 10% in Australia, 19% in the UK, 35% in Canada. So I keep hearing Canada did this right. Canada's doing it right. Okay, but Canada's not masking. And so what's the deal? France, 54% say they mask, as opposed to 59% in the United States. And yet what we keep hearing is masking, masking, masking. Again, this is mostly because President Trump has not been so active on the masking front, right? which again, I, I, I think out of an abundance of caution, you mask. But the, the very weird notion that America is not masking, like there's not a lot of data to demonstrate this. I'm looking at the map right now from the New York Times that shows how often do you wear a mask in public when you expect to be within six feet of another person. In all of the hotspots, the numbers are in excess of 80% of people. Certainly in excess of 75% of people say that they always wear a mask when they are with other people and nearly everyone else says frequently. Very few people say rarely or never. Okay, but the narrative of the media is that there are only two things that can shut this down. Lockdown, which is never going to be a long-term solution, and masking, which most people in America are adopting. And yet the thing is still spreading. Why? Well, there are a few reasons. There are a few reasons. One, community spread never stopped. America's a very big country. And because America's a very big, very populous country, it looks a lot more in urban areas like Italy or New York than it does like Vermont. Okay, that's number one, or like Maine. Number two, the strain that's hit the United States is the European strain, not the Asian strain. So comparing what's happening in Vietnam or Hong Kong or Taiwan to what's happening in the United States is not actually accurate. It's a different strain. The Chinese virus went to Europe. There it mutated. It became about 10 times as transmissible. And that's what's been hitting the United States. Now, the good news is it seems like it was a lot less deadly than the version that was hitting Asia. The bad news is that if it's less deadly and more transmissible, you can still end up with a higher number of absolute deaths. But the way the media are pitching this is that the United States is blowing this. There's a long article in the Washington Post today about how the United States is blowing this. And apparently they say we came out too early and we didn't wear masks. Again, we are masking better than most European countries. The European countries that are masking better than we are have a higher death rate in many cases. And when it comes, I mean, these are just pure statistical facts. We are testing more than any other country by a huge margin, an enormous margin. So when we talk about the number of sheer cases being detected, President Trump would be wrong if he suggests that the tests themselves are are basically the reason why we see skyrocketing cases. We see skyrocketing cases because there are skyrocketing cases. But those, he is right when he says that we are seeing numbers, like actual confirmed numbers, because we are doing more testing. That is true, obviously. Again, that doesn't mean that the spread is false. It just means that we are seeing the spread more clearly than a lot of other countries. We're doing more testing. We opened up at the same time as a lot of European countries. We are handling this pretty well in the hospitals. And mask wearing is generally being adopted. But the media's narrative is that 
we are uniquely defenseless. We blew this in a way nobody else blew this. Here was Chuck Todd yesterday suggesting the United States is uniquely defenseless against the virus. Again, I'm looking at the death rates per million. Okay, this is from Worldometers. I'm looking at death rates per million and the death rates per million across the world. The United States is not number one. The United States currently ranks number 10 after Belgium, San Marino, Andorra, UK, Spain, Italy, Sweden, France, and Chile. So the United States ranks number 10. Brazil is close on our heels and number 12. The Netherlands is at number 13. Mexico is close on our heels at number 16. The United States is not, in fact, uniquely defenseless against the spread. The United States is struggling with it just like pretty much everywhere else that had community spread without heavy testing and tracing at the very beginning, right? I think we should actually distinguish between nations that never got hit hard, right? They didn't have a key number of early cases and got on it early and nations where it had already spread so widely that it was community spread before you could even do testing and tracing. Anyway, here is Chuck Todd pushing this notion that America has handled this uniquely badly when, again, the evidence does not suggest that this is true. How did this happen? We are the richest country in human history with an unmatched medical infrastructure and a literate, educated populace. Yet today, we stand uniquely helpless among industrialized countries in the fight against COVID-19. A world that once looked up to us to do the impossible now averts its eyes over our failure to do the possible. Okay, again, I'm just wondering what he thinks the possible looks like when we have locked down virtually every part of the country for long periods of time and most people are masking. The national mask mandate from the Congress. I'd like to see Nancy Pelosi promote it, do it. I mean, let's see if we can get away with this constitutionally. It's most people are adopting smart behaviors. Just to, by the way, before lockdown, people locked down. Okay, people are generally acting in self-interested fashion. The lockdowns helped slow the spread, which is what they were supposed to do. They were never the full-on answer. Yeah, but this is the narrative. The narrative is that the United States has blown it in every way, except for the Democratic areas, which have done incredibly well, like New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, which is just a joke. Yeah, that, is, that is not correct. How this thing got political, as opposed to everybody is struggling with the right answers in an unprecedented time, I think it's pretty obvious that all we are seeing right now with COVID is just sort of the final iteration of, of a country's dissolution. It seems like that is, that is really what is happening here. Hopefully, with the help of God, this is not you know the final period of the American epic. I don't think it is. But it certainly feels that way when we can't even get our bleep together on recognizing decent intent for most people when it comes to trying to handle a global pandemic, which, by the way, is, again, rising in many areas that are not the United States. Okay, in just a second, we're gonna get to President Trump. He did an interview with Chris Wallace, who's much ballyhooed. We'll talk about it in just a second. First, my new book, as I've mentioned, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It goes on sale on sale tomorrow, Tuesday, July 21st, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. We will be doing a virtual live signing event on the day of release. With your purchase of a signed copy, you can write in a question which could be read and answered as I sign your book live on the air. Could be lucky you. You can pre-order your signed copy and write in your question at dailywire.com slash Ben. The book covers two fundamentally different visions of America that are now on the table. One vision is unifying, the vision I've been talking about, the unionist vision, where we look at our shared philosophy, culture, and history. We agree on it, and we move forward together. The other disintegrates our country in the name of fundamental change. Narratives like Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility or the New York Times 1619 Project. These are classic examples of the disintegrationists. Disintegrationists look at cancel culture as a way to club everyone in submission and to use sheer power politics to destroy the foundations upon which we stand. How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It details how the disintegrationist worldview has gained so much cultural ground so quickly and offers a penetrating view of our culture. And it tells us where to go from here and how we can fight back. Again, that's dailywire.com slash Ben to order your signed copy today. Join my live signing on Tuesday, July 21st. Also, 2020 has been an unbelievably insane year. Remember that time Trump was impeached? That happened this year. And the leftist media, they're not helping, obviously, when it comes to everything from COVID to racial politics. When you can't get the real story, you have to go outside the narrative and get the facts. So if you're a political junkie set on getting both sides of the story, get a reader's pass today from dailywire.com. You'll get access to exclusive op-eds from us, your podcast hosts, as well as guest writers, in-depth analysis from our Daily Wire reporters on top of our regular breaking news. You can check out my latest piece, Five Reasons Why the Media's Narrative About How We Blew COVID-19, Actually, not correct. This membership tier is already a bargain at three bucks a month. If you join today, you get your first month for 99 cents. You also get access to our mobile app and you receive push notifications for breaking news and special content, as well as join the community of Daily Wire members who are actively commenting and discussing our content with each other. That's mobile ad-free access to all of the Daily Wire news, exclusive op-eds, all of our podcasts on our mobile app, all for the low price of $1. 
And best of all, your dollars are getting you the news you need without the left to spin. So head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe and join today. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. All righty. So all of this kind of chaos on COVID-19 has led to people basically declaring themselves virtuous for saying that they're not going to go back to work. There's a piece in the New York Times today called I Won't Return to the Classroom and You Shouldn't Ask Me To by Rebecca Martinson. Now, I looked up Miss Martinson. She appears to be, I, I, it's hard to judge people's appearances. She appears to be in her 40s, probably. She does not look like she's in her 60s or 70s, which means that she's at higher risk of COVID, but she's not at severe risk of death from COVID. She says that she doesn't want to go back to work. She's a public school teacher. She says, every day when I walk into work as a public school teacher, I am prepared to take a bullet to save a child. In the age of school shootings, that's what the job requires. But asking me to return to the classroom amid a pandemic and expose myself and my family to COVID-19 is like asking me to take that bullet home to my own family. I won't do it, and you shouldn't want me to. She became an educator after a career as a nurse. I teach medical science and introduction to nursing to 11th and 12th graders at a regional skills center that serves students from 22 different high schools in 13 different school districts. She says that her school district and school haven't ruled out asking us to return to in-person teaching in the fall. Nothing I've heard reassures me I can safely teach in person. So a couple of things. One, we have essential workers, and I mean people who are like grocery stores, who've been working for months. They never stopped working. Are public school teachers less essential than the workers who are staffing the grocery stores? I've been told that public education is the number one most essential business in America, which is why we should be spending oodles and oodles of cash on it. So which is it? Is it essential or is it non-essential? We know the risk to kids is essentially minimal from COVID-19. Why is it that we can't try the solution proposed by my friend John Pidehor? It's a commentary magazine. Bring the kids back to school. Have the teachers Skype in if you're so worried. Or why not have younger teachers? But this, this notion that you are essentially protected from disease when you go to school as a teacher, listen, life is filled with risks. That does not mean that we shouldn't take measures to try and protect our teachers. I know a lot of private schools looking to open. They want to protect their teachers too. And you know what they're doing? They're, they're taking measures to do exactly that. I assume that they would do the same thing in the school district that this woman teaches at. But it's hard to declare yourself an essential worker while saying you're less essential than the people who work at the grocery stores, who, by the way, have been asked to go into work and who are disproportionately young. This is, this is not about the kids, right? It's not. It's, it's just not about the kids. And, and you know what's going to happen here. There's going to be a vast increase in homeschooling as there has been over the last year or so. She suggests distance learning. Distance learning has been a giant fail for public schools. I believe the statistic was in LAUSD, 40% of students never opened a computer when they got home. The gaps that are going to emerge, the class gaps here are going to be incredible. People like me, I can afford to be to spend time at home. My wife can spend time at home. My kids' grandparents, my parents can spend time with my kids at home. My daughter has, has thrived in this homeschooling period. She went from being a kindergartner reading at first grade level to a kindergartner reading at third grade level during this period. How many people is that true of who are already struggling with the finances? You want to exacerbate class conflict? You want to exacerbate income inequality? Make sure that people can't go to school. And so this narrative has some fairly significant consequences. Also, it happens to be anti-scientific. Europe has reopened its schools. The schools have not been the main vector of spread, particularly for younger kids. There's some evidence that junior high kids are spreading this thing, but that evidence is, is still not as rich as you would like. Certainly for young kids, the idea that young kids are supposed to stay out of school is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. And meanwhile, President Trump did an interview on Fox News with Chris Wallace. The media were all over it because Chris Wallace basically fact-checked Trump in real time. There's only one problem. Half the fact-checks Chris Wallace actually said were not quite correct. Trump called him on them. He called Trump on some of them. I think it was a particularly horrible showing by Trump, but it did show that, that Trump's fluency with the fact is not all that high. It also shows some of the difficulties he's going to have with Joe Biden mainly because he's trying to draw a, a two-pronged narrative against Joe Biden. Prong number one is that Joe Biden is senile and old and doesn't have it together. And, and then prong number two is that Joe Biden is a true threat to the country. Now, the way that you could do this is you could say, Joe Biden is so senile and so crazy that his vice president's actually going to be president. You kind of have to wait until he selects a VP. If Joe Biden were to select a Kamala Harris, then you just attack Kamala Harris, right? You say, Joe Biden is not the president. Kamala Harris is the president. That would be the line of attack, I think, that, that maybe Trump is waiting for here. But- in, in the meantime, you have this bizarre dual message where Joe Biden is simultaneously deeply unthreatening because he's not alive and simultaneously super duper threatening because he's a socialist secretly. So here is President Trump to Chris Wallace talking about Biden doing an interview like this one. Uh, you know, again, this is I, I don't know if this is going to be a particularly successful attack by the president here. Let him come out of his basement, go around 
I'll make four or five speeches a day. I'll be interviewed by you. I'll be interviewed by the worst killers that hate my my guts. They hate my guts. There's nothing they can ask me that I won't give them a proper answer to. Some people will like it. Some people won't like it. I agree with that. But look, you answer the question. Let Biden sit through an interview like this. He'll be on the ground crying for mommy. He'll say, mommy, mommy, please take me home. Well, we've asked him for an interview, sir. He can't do an interview. He's incompetent. Okay. That, I mean, there's truth to this. There is truth to this. But simultaneously, that's actually not the biggest problem for Trump, meaning for Biden. Meaning, meaning that Biden being a not alive person, as I've been saying for months, is actually one of his great assets. Trump is, the COVID has really hampered Trump's ability to campaign just on a political level. Put aside his reaction to COVID. Trump's ability to campaign has really been stifled here. Trump's main pitch in 2016, one of them was, he's a high energy dude, right? Hillary Clinton was stumbling into vans and Donald Trump, same age, was running around the country, taking jets to seven different places, doing these rallies, demonstrating high levels of energy. He's boxed in because he can't do rallies right now. And that's really hurting him in a fairly major way. It doesn't help when the president starts talking about his own cognitive facility uh, or faculty. He says that, that Chris, he tells Chris Wallace he passed a cognitive test easily. And Chris Wallace is like, right, but that cognitive test is, can you identify an elephant? It's not the hardest test. No, but the it, last it's a picture and it says, the what's last, that? And it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation because, yes, the first few questions are easy, but I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by seven. And let me tell you, you couldn't answer. <laughs> you couldn't answer. All right. What's the question? Many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. OK. okay? You, and I answered about- all 35 questions correctly. You- OK, I'm sorry. That's not going anywhere. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just not going anywhere. This is not it's a cognitive test, guys. Cognitive tests are not the same thing as like the SAT. This wasn't the LSAT he was taking here. He wasn't taking the medical boards. <laughs> yeah, cognitive test is basically does your brain function. It is not. I mean, Chris Wallace is not wrong on this. Where Chris Wallace is wrong is there were certain times here where Wallace just repeated stuff that wasn't true. So, for example, Wallace was confronting Trump on covid mortality rates. And Wallace was suggesting the United States is one of the worst in the world that's dealing with this. And Trump was like, no, we're not. And Trump is actually right here. We have the seventh highest mortality rate in the world. Our mortality rate is higher than Brazil. It's higher than Russia. And the European Union has us on a travel ban. Yeah, I think what we'll do, well, we have them on a travel ban too, Chris. I closed them off. If you remember, I was the one that did the European Union very early. But when you talk about mortality rates, I think it's the opposite. I think we have one of the lowest mortality it's rates true, in the sir. world. We, well, we, we're going to we take have, a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day. We will this, take a this, look. Number one low mortality rate. I hope you show the scenario because it shows what fake news is all about. Okay. Okay, and Trump is right about this. Again, I read you the stats a little bit earlier. So Wallace actually had it wrong here. So the media were treating it as though Trump got everything wrong here. That is not correct. Wallace got a bunch of things wrong here. Okay, another example of this. Wallace Wallace and Trump went at it about whether Trump, about whether Biden has threatened to defund the police. And this really rests and it hinges on the question of what do you mean by defund the police? So the left has played a game with defund the police. On the one hand, you have some people who are like, defund the police means completely defund the police. No more police. It's true. Biden said, I'm not defunding the police. Then there's defund the police as in, shift funding away from the cops and towards social workers. And Biden basically embraced that. Okay, so just as a predicate, here is a flashback, Joe Biden saying he supports redirecting money from police and then suggests that the police have, in some cases, become the enemy. Instead of sending two police officers with deadly weapons to that Wendy's drive through in Atlanta, we could have sent a wellness counselor and a tow truck, and then Ray's Hard Brooks would still be alive today. And his three daughters would still have their daddy. Are you open to that kind of reform? Yes, I propose that kind of reform. Surplus military equipment for law enforcement. They don't need that. The last thing you need is an up-armored Humvee coming into a neighborhood. It's like the military invading. They don't know anybody. They become the enemy. They're supposed to be protecting these people. So my generic point is that... Do we agree that we can redirect some of the funding? Yes, absolutely. Okay, we were told that that's exactly what defund the police means by the experts, right? There were full articles in the Washington Post and New York Times suggesting that defund the police means shifting the funding, which Joe Biden embraced. Here is Chris Wallace telling Trump full scale that Joe Biden does not want to defund the police. Liberal Democrats have been running cities in this country for decades. Poorly. Why is it so bad right now? Uh, They've run them poorly. It was always bad, but now it's gotten totally out of control. And it's really because they wanted to fund the police and Biden wants to fund fund the police. Sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. 
Did you read the charter that he agreed to? It says to nothing about defunding the oh, police. Oh, really? It says abolish. It says defund. Let's go. All right. Get, well, me, you, get you, me the charter, please. All right. Because you've got to start studying for these. <laughs> okay. It, he, he's not right about the platform. He is right, though, that, that Joe Biden has suggested before that he wants to shift funding away from police, right? So the, the media are playing this as, look at Chris Wallace really grilling Trump. Trump did okay during this interview. He really did. This wasn't a bad interview for Trump. The big problem for Trump is that until Joe Biden appoints a VP, it's going to be difficult for Joe Biden to be attacked as sort of a threat to the republic. And the other attack that Joe Biden has kind of seen now, like we all know, man, that's that's not really much of an attack. All righty. So we'll be back here a little bit later today with two additional hours of content. In the meantime, go out and purchase a copy of my book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, surging up the bestseller charts right now. It is out tomorrow. Pre-order it now and be one of the first to read it. Otherwise, we'll see you here later today or tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling, assistant director Pavel Wydowski, technical producer Austin Stevens, playback and media operated by Nick Sheehan, associate producer Katie Swinnerton, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Kanye is back in the presidential race. Trump gives conservatives a lesson on political power and churches burn around the West. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.